Hi, welcome to Quiet Connection, a podcast dedicated to ending the stigma around postpartum mental health. I'm Chelsea. In this episode, I'm joined by my partner, Ben, who gives us his perspective as a caregiver and partner to someone experiencing severe postpartum mental health disorders. This episode contains several very sensitive topics, including medical trauma and suicide. Please be mindful of your comfort level if you choose to listen. And if you or anyone you know is struggling with their mental health, please seek help through your local resources or by calling or texting the National Crisis Line at 988. Hello! I am joined by my partner, Ben, today, and he is going to give us a caregiver's perspective of what it's like handling a situation where a loved one or a family member is dealing with postpartum mental health disorders. So, hey. Hi. How are you? I'm okay. You a little nervous? A little bit, yes. (laughs) You want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, My name's Ben. I'm 34. I have a job at the University of Vermont. I'm a uh, supervisor there and um, got two beautiful little girls and we're going to talk about how they came to be. We are. We are. Yeah. (laughs) I think we're going to be focusing a little bit more on our second. Yes. Um, But we will touch on the experience of when we had our first. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Can you handle it? I'm going to have to. I'm committed now. (laughs) (laughs) For listeners who listened to my episode, I very briefly sort of touched on how I had postpartum depression with my first. And I know that you have some pretty vivid memories of those first few days. I do. So maybe you can talk about that a little bit. Well, I first knew something was really up when... The day that we brought her home at 7 p.m., you sort of melted onto the floor while I was holding our infant Lily, and Lily was crying, and you were crying, and I was standing there wondering what the fuck to do (laughs) (laughs) because everyone around me is just crying, and I had no idea how to handle it, so I just... Sat down on the couch holding and trying to bounce Lily while rubbing your back and telling you it was okay. And for the next, I don't know how many weeks, it was like clockwork. Around 7 p.m. at night, you would just lose it and get really teary and emotional. And I would just, it just kind of became part of the routine. It's like, all right, time to comfort mommy while we bounce the baby. It got better after a while, but, you know, as we've talked about, you had a very difficult time bonding with Lily. Did you? Um, I think now that I've had a second one, uh, I definitely had a harder time bonding with Lily than I did with Avery, but I don't think I had as hard a time as you did with bonding because I was kind of that... Not nearly as much as with Avery, but I was kind of that primary caregiver in those early days. Especially Um, at night. Especially at night, yeah. And then you were pretty supportive of me. Like, we went to go see my doctor. And and I don't think at that point we really did a whole lot other than wait. 
Yeah. Like I didn't, they prescribed a medication that I never took. Yep. And we just kind of waited. But I will, I remember being on a walk with you and saying the words out loud, like, I regret this. Mm -hmm. What did that feel like? Well, my primary trauma response is to suppress and forget. So <laughs> I don't actually remember that happening, but I can imagine I was pretty upset. I do remember some of the things that were said uh, when Avery, when you're having your episode with Avery, because that was much more recent. But um, because we've been working together through your generalized anxiety and depression for years, I think we just kind of waited to see if it got any worse and it, it, it was bad, but it, you were more numb than, you know, actively thinking about hurting yourself or, you know, the suicidal ideation and stuff that happened with the second. Uh, you were more just kind of numb to the world and just deadened. So we, I, I, I guess I could handle that better. I had lived through more of your depressive episodes than I had your panic attacks. Mm -hmm. So I had a better handle on how to help you through those. Yeah. And it was a lot of just keep you comfortable, make sure you're eating and take care of the baby. And the rest kind of sorted itself out over time. Well, and I feel like with Lily... I could still take care of her. Like I still went through the motions and mm -hmm. I could still take care of her. I may not have been taking care of myself very well, which that was kind of where you stepped in and you were like, okay, you're going to sleep tonight or yeah. you need to take a shower. But I made sure she was fed and bathed and clothed, even though it was like torture to just move. Yeah. But so like with Lily, you were more of a caregiver directly to me. Yes. Avery was a whole other experience. Yep. And I think, like I said, we're going to focus on that because it is recent and it was traumatic for both of us. But I think it, it was traumatic for you in a very different way than it was traumatic for me. Yeah, it was. And... We have talked about this a little bit in therapy, um, separately and together, but this will be, I think, the first time that we sit down and recount the whole experience. Mm -hmm. So it's a little nerve wracking. A little. Yeah. We started to last night and then we were like, we should stop. We yeah. need to save yeah, this. We gotta, we're going to do this tomorrow when we record. <laughs> <laughs> so I talked about in my episode how Avery was so wanted by me like with lily i felt kind of pressured by you and by time and by expectations mm -hmm. but avery was a baby that i wanted on my terms and i wanted like i just wanted her so bad yeah and kind of from the get-go the experience was totally different um the pregnancy was totally different yeah I don't know what your thoughts of my behaviors <laughs> during the pregnancy were, but I feel like I was angrier and 
much more uncomfortable and probably just harder to deal with. Well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, you were a little more aggressive in the second pregnancy, but I don't know that I would necessarily deem it more difficult. I just had to change my strategy. But I think that the the story of Avery coming into the world, I think actually starts farther back. For me, the, that this whole journey started May 27th, 2021. When you were in your accident. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Well, I was... Or summarize it? Yeah, I was, uh, I was in a motorcycle accident. I was in a head-on collision with an elderly driver who didn't see me and turned into my lane. I collided with his car at about 35 miles an hour, bounced off his windshield, hit the car behind him, bounced off that car, and then rolled to a stop in the pavement. I had three broken vertebrae, two broken wrists, and a broken leg, bruised ribs. Internal bleeding. Internal bleeding, a, a brain bleed. So it wasn't very fun. I spent two weeks in the hospital. I had a and surgery. And a whole summer of, of recovery. Nurses and home health visits. Yep. But I had surgery on my back. They put rods in my spine to make it so I can stand up. Uh, my wrists were in casts for 10 weeks. I think it was 16 on my right wrist. Because that, that was, one was off. Yeah. <laughs> that wrist was, was off. Broken and dislocated. So it was, um, that was my first real experience with really brutal physical trauma. And it changed a lot about me. It introduced me to fear in a different way than I had ever experienced before. And it wasn't until after that accident and almost losing me that you were even, you know, really considering having, it, it, I feel like it cemented us having another kid. Yeah, it was definitely an idea that we floated and that I, and I was thinking about, but it was a hundred percent solidified after we knew that like you were going to be able to walk again yep. and that I wasn't going to have to nurse you yep. forever. Yep. So I feel like that is where this journey really started. And I think it's important to start there because I had just gotten into therapy before the accident and the kinds of things that I've learned about myself and have come to terms with in the time since have really reshaped how I interact with and see the world. So a lot of things started changing all at once after that day. Yeah. That was the catalyst to have Avery and naturally we you know we got pregnant and the pregnancy was a little bit more aggressive as we had said but as far as you know like complications and things both pregnancies were I mean fairly textbook by most standards. So we didn't have any complications or anything like that other than the fact that Avery was breech. Yes, that was the only kind of different thing. Yeah, they had their rough moments, both pregnancies, but I, I feel like we got pretty lucky and both were fairly smooth. It was after the babies were born that things got complicated. For me, it felt pretty immediate 
with well, it was pretty immediate with both of them. It was, yeah. I had a really brief window of like a golden hour with Avery, and then things kind of got bad fast. Yeah. Did you notice or did you like recognize that something was wrong while we were still in the hospital with Avery? At the time, I knew that you weren't feeling well, but you had also never had a C-section before. Yeah. So I didn't know what was normal and what was abnormal. In hindsight, we kind of, we know what was going on now, and it was that they didn't get all of the placenta out when they were doing whatever vacuum procedure they do at the end of the C-section. Yeah. And you were starting to feel, your body was starting to react to that. Yeah. But at the time, no, I did not think that anything was any more wrong than it normally would be after a major surgery. Yeah. Because I was really sick. Yeah. I, do you remember, do you remember when I was trying, like, I was like, let's just get out of the room for a little while and we couldn't even make it off the floor. Like, I, I, I was like, we got to go back. We got to go back. Like, I feel like that was already anxiety setting in. Do you remember that? I don't remember that particular instance. I remember the spinal headache and that the treatment for it didn't take the first time they had to do it twice and i remember you being anxious to get out of the hospital after what we've been there two days maybe yeah i think after avery was born and you're just like maybe if we just go home I'll and i'm in my and i'm in, in my comfort space that i'll feel better yeah so i remember kind of i don't know it felt more rushed getting out of there with avery than it ever did with lily yeah. And I was so numb with Lily that I just let everybody else take the reins. Like I was like, I'll go home when they tell me to go home. And, um, but with Avery, I was so sick and I was like crawling out of my skin yeah. and I was like, maybe if I just get out of here, yeah, I'll feel better. And I was not correct. But we kind of skipped over the actual birth. So it was a scheduled C-section and obviously that was the first for both of us. So I didn't know what to expect. They wheeled you out of the room to go into the operating room and they gave me the scrubs and the shower cap to put on. And then 15 minutes later, like, okay, you can come in. And hospitals still made me and still do make me very nervous ever since spending two weeks in one with a, with a broken spine. So I was already on edge from that. And going to the operating room and oh, there's all the bright lights and there's a bunch of people and everybody's busy and you're laying down on this table with the curtain up and I just kind of sit by your head and you were, you were scared and you just kept saying how this feels so weird. This feels so weird because you can't feel anything from the waist down. I mean, I could feel things. I just didn't feel pain. Right. And you could just feel tugging is what you kept saying. That feels like they're just tugging. Well, and it's like, I think I compared it to slicing through bubble wrap, like pop, pop, pop. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so that was um, scary. And just seeing you because you were laying down and they were pulling on you so hard, obviously, like, you know, to get to the baby quickly that you were like jiggling around and like your head was moving and then you're talking about how weird it feels and you're getting emotional and I'm just you know my heart rate skyrocketing at this point and then five minutes later 
they're like, here she is. And they hold up this yellow slimy monkey. And she looks like a potato. It was like, oh, okay, there she is. <laughs> and as I'm looking up, I get just a, just a slight glimpse of a lot of blood. And I'm like, oh, okie dokie. And I duck back down behind the curtain. Uh, and then they rush Avery over to the table to be checked out by all the NICU doctors. And so they're like, oh, you can go with the baby. And you were like, yeah, go with her, go with her. I'll be fine. So I go over and I stand or try to stand next to Avery. And she's in this, you know, the little clear plastic bin and there, she's not really breathing because she was a C-section. So her lungs are still full of schmuck. And so they were working on getting her to breathe and, and, it was a little touch and go for a minute there. And then she started breathing, but through this whole thing, I can't, I can barely see her. I definitely can't touch her. I can't get it. So I'm standing in the middle of this operating room with a crowd of nurses around my new baby, my wife in, in pieces behind me getting sewn back together. And I don't want to look at that. So I'm just having a mild panic attack standing in the middle of this operating room, wondering what I'm supposed to be doing and feeling absolutely useless. And then they got Avery to breathe and they said, we're going to take her to the NICU to keep doing some tests. And you said, go with her, go stay with her, be with her. I'll be fine. And, you know, I did not agree with that. I really wished I could be in two places at once, but I went with Avery and they got her under the, the warming lamp and they were doing her, you know, checking her out and weighing her and measuring her and all that stuff. And I was able to hold her hand and took a bunch of pictures and um, things started to settle down after that until they had you all sewn up and we were back in the, in the room. And that's kind of where we were talking about before. Yeah. And things so, started to go wrong. Yeah. I, I mean, I developed a spinal headache and it took them over a day to be able to do the procedure that would remedy that. And it didn't really take. Um, so I was feeling really horrible from that. And I just, I was sick and I was feeling like I needed to get out of my body. And it just, it, I was miserable. Yeah. I was miserable. She was in the nursery as often as she could be. Yep. Which sucked because for that first like hour or two, when Avery and I were in the same room, I just held her and I never wanted to let her go. And I was so happy. And it went from that to so sick so yeah. fast. Yeah. <laughs> in the interest of not making a 12-hour podcast, I'm going to scoot ahead a little bit. Okay. We did go home. We did. I did not get better. No. Um, if anything, I got worse. Yeah. So I, I, there was, it was about five days, I think, that we were home. Yeah. And I said I was going to go take a rest. And I think I was only laying down for a couple of minutes. And then I think I'd like to hear it from your perspective. You were outside the bedroom door yeah, at I the was, table. I was sitting at the dining room table. With our older daughter. Yeah. And I heard you get out of bed quickly saying, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. And the panic in your voice was was palpable. And I immediately got up and I was like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And you said, there's a clot. And there's like, there's a lot of blood. And I went into the bathroom and there was a lot of blood. 
one of something that was fortuitous was shortly before this happened, we had contacted my parents to come and get uh, my oldest to bring her for an overnight. So they were already on their way and actually arrived shortly after all this started. So when I saw how much blood there was and the size of the clot, I called 911 and got an ambulance coming because I think we had read in some brochure, if you see a clot bigger than a certain size and you're supposed to get to the hospital. And it wasn't just one. No, and this was multiple clots, all coming. bigger than they were supposed to be, followed by gushes of blood. So I called 911 and they're on their way and my parents and the ambulance show up around the same time. And I remember you were on the phone with the dispatcher and they were giving you directions on what to do to get off of the toilet, to lay down on your side yep. on the floor. And I was outside the bathroom just staring at you through the doorway thinking, oh my God, I'm going to lose her. I'm going to have to raise these girls by myself and just lost it. I was sobbing on the floor. My Lily, mind was... Lily was in the doorway too. Yeah, and we had... So fortunately, my mother showed up and was able to pack Lily up and bring her upstairs and get her distracted while the EMTs got you out of the house. But I just remember my brain being frozen. And this is where I think the motorcycle accident comes into play. I've always been a fast thinker and I react instantly in times of crisis and I froze. I had never frozen before and I didn't know what that was like. And it was, it was terrifying. It was paralyzing and I didn't know what to do. So I'm just on the floor in the fetal position, sobbing my eyes out, watching you bleed out on the floor of the bathroom. Yeah. And then the EMTs got there. They got you in a wheelchair. They got you out of the house into the ambulance. And I followed the ambulance to the hospital. Our local hospital first. Yes. Um, and when I was there... Essentially, I kept bleeding and I kept um, producing more and more clots. And they determined that they did not have the capability to deal with my situation. So they packed me up and started a blood transfusion and sent me to our bigger hospital, to the UVM hospital. So we went there. And I don't know about you, but when they were doing my assessment and they were like examining me, I talk about this a little bit in my episode, but I felt like I wasn't there. Like they weren't talking to me. They were talking about me. And I don't know if I if I imagined that or if like or if you noticed that I felt like there were two doctors and they were just sort of consulting you with know, each other. I do remember that. I do remember feeling like we were in a Petri dish. And they were just discussing an interesting specimen. Yeah. And all the humanity was taken out of it. And um, before I knew it, I was back in an operating room. Yeah. Like it was just, it was like, okay, we're going to try this and it's going to hurt. And it did. Yeah. And then they immediately stopped and were like, okay, we're booking an OR. Yeah. And it just was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so through all of that, I'm 
having to text your whole family, trying to keep everybody updated as to what was going on. And I don't remember what time of night it was, but you were at UVM and most of your family showed up and was there in the waiting room waiting for the results of this, I don't remember what it was DNC. called. DNC procedure. And they told us when it was done and we could go back and we could see you and you're just bundled up under mountains of blankets. All we could see was your face and you were just crying about everything, obviously, because you <laughs> I don't just, remember. You just had a, a surgery coming off of your pain medications. And I remember thinking that, okay, they, they got it. They got it this time. We're, we're good. She's going to be okay. And boy, boy, howdy. (laughs) It was just the beginning. Yeah. I had about a week after that where I felt really, really good. Yep. I mean, physically, obviously, I was still recovering from now two surgeries, but like I was okay mentally. But again, I'm fast forwarding our story a little bit. It Mm -hmm. did not take long for my mental health to start deteriorating. And I went through a period where I couldn't eat and I couldn't sleep and I was nauseous all the time. And then I I remember the nausea being a huge problem. And I convinced myself that our newborn had this insanely rare seizure disorder. Yes. And you were so exhausted because I was so exhausted. We were both so exhausted that you were like, maybe you're right. Yeah. And that was, in hindsight, that was the worst thing I could have said. (laughs) I was trying to be supportive and not dismissive of your fears. And I had been through so much trauma in the last... Three or four weeks. Well... She was only a month old. Right. But in the last year, for me personally, I had been through so much that I... A lot of my confidence had been shaken. I didn't trust myself the way that I used to. I didn't trust logic the way that I used to. And that was not what you needed right then. No, but you, I don't blame you. Yeah. So essentially we ended up, we called the pediatrician. We ended up in the ER. Ben spent the night with Avery in the children's hospital, hooked up to an EEG, She did not have a seizure disorder. No, she did not. But that did not stop my anxiety. And when I went to pick them up the morning after the procedure, I ended up in the ER because of lack of sleep and lack of food and lack of water. And I had almost passed out. So I spent a few hours in the ER and they just they told me that they thought that I was having some anxiety and and they sent me home to meet with my doctor. And met with my doctor and he prescribed me Ativan and that was like a miracle at the time like it stopped everything for a little while but then i through through working with a postpartum psychiatric nurse we switched my meds up again and needless to say my mental health took a dive again and it just got worse and yeah. worse. And you got to watch that um, to the point where, and I am fast forwarding a little bit, but not much because all of this happened in a matter of weeks. 
um, to the point where I was, I called the crisis line and they told me that I needed to pack a bag and go to the ER because at that point I was having suicidal ideation and I was not eating. I was not sleeping. So basically we packed me up. I left a note for our older daughter. We went to the ER and I just had to wait days to know where I was going. And we won't get into what my experience was like, because that's not what this is about. I kind of want to know what it was like for you behind the scenes. Like when you had to tell Lily, Lily was at school when I left. Yeah. And like what you had to tell Lily and like what it was like for you while while I was gone that first time because I checked. So they checked me into a a mental health facility. Yeah. I remember you being put into the ambulance and driving away and feeling like my heart was being ripped out. My dad was in the military for years and years, and I had said goodbye to him in airports dozens of times and I always thought that with the, with the amount of times I've said goodbye to people for long periods of time, it should be less painful, but it never is. Anytime you have to say goodbye and then there's, there's any kind of unknown of when you're going to see someone again, it's incredibly difficult. So I clearly remember you, you know, seeing the ambulance fade away and not knowing what to do and feeling just completely lost but knowing that i had to get my shit together and go take care of our girls so i just kind of did my best to process what i could and squash the rest down to take care of later and uh i told lily that you know, in in words that a seven-year-old could understand that you were depressed and that you were having really, really sad thoughts that you couldn't stop or control and that you were going somewhere to get help. And I don't think she really understood what was going on, but she accepted what was going on. She's always been a trooper that way. She, I think, is incredibly strong and empathetic and a caring person because of what she's gone through at such a young age. And I think it will help her later in life. Um, kind of a trial by fire situation, but, but I don't, I wish she didn't have to yeah, have gone through any of it. Any parent that has a child that goes through trauma wishes that, but I think that overall she's become stronger for it. But that started the routine of being the sole caregiver of two children. And I had a lot of help. My family really stepped up. The in-laws helped kept keep us fed. They'd bring us casseroles and quiches and dishes that I could just heat up and I didn't have to worry about cooking. But it was it was exhausting. You had a newborn. Yeah. And a seven-year-old that had just started first grade. Yep. She had, I remember shortly after all this happened, uh, it started snowing 
and Lily didn't have boots or snow pants that fit. So I had to go to <laughs> Once Upon a Child and get her new clothes. And uh, it was there that I learned that youth sh shoes and baby shoes are different sizes and they only go up to a certain size. And then you got to switch from a 12 to a one and it makes no fucking sense. <laughs> but I got her, got, she got her shoes that fit and I got her snow pants that fit. And in hindsight, what it really makes me realize is the mental load that most women carry that is just expected. It took five people to replace what you do by yourself Yeah, when you were gone. And that's not something I will ever forget. And I feel like it illustrated how low the bar is for men to be considered a good dad. And for a mom to be just considered a mom, it took, it took five people to do what you do. That's just considered being a mom, just par for the course. This is what's expected. Yeah. And yet I'm some kind of superhero because I took care of two girls for three months, Yeah, you know, mostly on my own. And yeah, it was a lot of work and I stepped up and I feel like I did a pretty good job, but it was fucking hard well and so to like clearly illustrate the point of how much pressure was put on you there wasn't just one hospitalization for me there were three hospitalizations in fairly quick succession my first hospitalization um when i came home within two days i was on a plane to north carolina to a specialized hospital for perinatal mood disorders and you dropped everything to fly me down there. Yep. And your parents and my parents stepped up to watch the girls. And again, this is a newborn at this point. She was like almost three months old. And I was in North Carolina for three weeks. Yeah. I missed Thanksgiving. I mean, at the first hospitalization, I was three hours away. So it, we weren't close, but I was multiple states away. Was that different for you? Yeah. Um, again, going back to the goodbyes scenario, when we when I left you in North Carolina and had to walk away and go back to the airport to fly home, it had only been um what four three four weeks since we had just done that for Brattleboro. Yeah, and it was just as pain. It was the, all over again, just as painful. And to then go home and know that you were that far away. Like there was no just get in the car and drive a long time. And then I'll get to see you. Mm -hmm. It was, it was days. You were really great about, we would FaceTime every, every evening and you were so good about getting the girls involved. Um, that was really hard for me. Yeah. Lily seemed to handle it like it was normal. <laughs> like, That's what I mean. She's so adaptable through all of this that I really think that the way that we handled it, I think she's going to take away more things that are beneficial than detrimental yeah. from this experience, I hope. Um. So at the end of that hospital stay, I did a treatment the only FDA approved treatment for postpartum depression, and it's a three day hormone infusion. Um, and you flew down and you stayed with me for the full three days. Yep. 
and it seemed like things were better for a little while. Things were better. While you were having the infusion, things were better. You, it was the first time I'd see you smile. It was the first time I'd seen you laugh since Avery had been born. Things were objectively better for a short time. And we, it would, again, just like when you got out of your surgery for the DNC, I was like, all right, we got it. We're good. We're going to go home and we're going to start living our lives. And when we were getting ready to leave North Carolina, it just, if it still felt too soon. Yeah. Deep down, there's something still felt off. You know, I th- I thought, okay, you know, we'd had the, we had the infusion, we got it, we're gonna be good, but just that little voice was, it's, it's we're not a hundred percent, but I thought we were good enough that we could get to a hundred percent back home. Yeah, and that's not what happened. But I think after that point, your main detriment to your mental health was the Ativan. And I think it exacerbated think that, a lot I think that of it made so much it made things so much worse. Yeah. I don't know how we would have or anyone would have been able to do it differently, but I think that we turned a corner where the anxieties and the and the negative emotions you were feeling were no longer being helped by the medication you were taking. They were being made worse. Yeah. And I think because I wouldn't take them consistently because I would like feel good for a little while. Mm-hmm. Then I think I, I would experience withdrawals and then things were just bad. They just got bad. And I held it together as best as I could, but I still wasn't functioning. I wasn't eating again. I wasn't sleeping again. Um, and on Christmas Day, I wound up back in the ER. My mom took me this time. And... A couple of days later, I was admitted for my third inpatient hospitalization, which was by far my worst. Um, And I go into that in my episode. But you visited me every day. Every single day you came on your lunch break. Yeah, Um, that that was that was the worst one. That was because leading up to it. Was. When it went beyond just being anxious and nauseous and sad it was sitting on the floor and screaming and saying that there was the only way to fix this was to just end it and to you know we when i remember there was a day that i i couldn't nothing that i said was helping usually i could sit down and talk to you for 5 to 10 minutes and slowly pull you back out of whatever panic attack you were in. I got really good at monologuing. Yeah. Motivational speeches. Nothing was helping this particular day. That's the day that I was I just got to leave her alone. I can't do anything. Nothing's I'm nothing that I'm saying is helping and you you reached out to your therapist on your own. I was like, "Oh, thank God. Thank God she's she's taking the initiative." And that is when we got the advice to get all of the sharp implements out of the house because your that, ideation fixated on your wrists. Yes. Your wrists. That was after the hospitalization. It that was. See, yeah. So I, I, does it all blend together? It's, it's all jumbled. 
So that was after the hospitalization. I came home from that hospitalization almost worse than when I went in. Yeah. And he's absolutely right. There was a day where I could not, it was, I hadn't slept at all the night before. I had massive insomnia and I just spent the entire day screaming and crying. I want to die. Let me die. I'm no good to you. I'm no good to the kids. Yeah. And while, while you were in the hospital was, and I was visiting you every day was, I don't know, the ward that you were in was some, like something out of a, a horror movie. It just, was awful. There was, there was no sunlight. It was just this loop, this square loop of, of rooms and just the, you just looked dead inside. Everything was was droopy and and gray, and that was the first time that you sat me down and you looked me in the eye and you said, "I think that you and the girls would be better off if I was dead." <laughs> and that that broke me. I I didn't know what to do about that. I, I, I didn't know what to say. And that, that night I, I just, I, I didn't know if I was, we, we got you through all these, through the blood clots and through the surgeries and the physical danger. And now you were still, I was still in danger of losing you because you didn't want to live. No, because I lost my mind. <laughs> my mind was gone. I thought I would never, ever feel normal again. And that was that was the ongoing battle through this whole thing. Was you you convincing yourself that the way that you felt in that moment was going to be how you how you spent the rest of your life, and that you did not want to spend the rest of your life that way because that feeling lasted months i know so it felt like that was my reality it felt permanent yeah and so it was just this ongoing battle of you saying that this was forever and you didn't want to live like this and it, that you just wanted to end it and me trying to convince you that you would get better in time and you had to wait it out and I knew you were suffering and I wished, I wished more than anything that there was something I could do because I've always been a fixer. I'm always somebody who offers solutions to problems, even when that's not what you're looking for. And to, to have literally nothing in my toolbox to help the person that I care more about than anything in the world. To feel that powerless was totally foreign to me. Well, and through this whole thing, through through you having to deal with me saying these things, you have to go home and parent our children. Yeah. And you have a seven-year-old who, who just wants your attention constantly. And you have an infant that needs your attention constantly. And you're carrying the weight of your partner essentially telling you that they don't want to be on this planet anymore. So I, I hold a lot of guilt around that, but I also 
still haven't processed that portion of, of this journey because I can't put myself back there because of how scary it was. I don't, I don't blame you at all. I don't blame you at all. And I, I understand how you would feel that way, but I don't hold anything against you. I never have, and I never will. This was not a choice that you made. This was thrust upon you and we got through it. We're still getting through it and we'll continue to get through it and so, and we'll be together and I'll be beside you, behind you, in front of you, pulling you along, however you need me. We're going to continue to get through this. I know. And I am forever grateful, but I came home. Yeah, and <laughs> I came home worse. And then I had to go through and to put away the sharp things in this house is not is no easy feat um ben is a collector of sharp things um like i i'm a bit of a nerd i collected swords when i was younger and i still have them swords daggers i also am an amateur carpenter so i have lots of saws and all kinds of things that could easily you know remove limbs and let lots of blood go and i love to cook so Sharp um, kitchen knives, so everything. Uh, I ended up putting a lock on the door that goes up to the attic, and I had the only key. And anything that was remotely sharp, I put the fucking cheese graters up. There. Anything <laughs> that was remotely sharp, <laughs> I put up there. Making dinner was really hard. It was very difficult. I would have to unlock the loft, go up, get the knife I needed, and then when I was done cooking, I had to wash it and go put it back up in the attic. Yeah. But so, so again, fast forwarding a little bit after that day that the hardest day I did, I called my therapist and she told me, we just need to get you to, we need to get you to this intensive outpatient program or the partial hospitalization program. We're going to get you there. You just need to make it until you get there. And I started that program. Were you able to notice a shift when I started the program? Probably not at first. Yeah, not right away. No. But. I couldn't even drive myself for a while. Like I was so sick that your mother drove me to my appointments. Yeah. And at this time I was on a really, you know, thank goodness. I had both the insurance that I have through my work and the support of my boss and my coworkers through this whole thing. Everybody was very supportive I was able to flex my schedule and, you know, work like two days a week and work remotely, which they don't usually allow for someone in my position. They were very, very supportive through the whole thing. So kudos to UVM physical plant for that. But to try and juggle all of that, you know, having, having you home, but not home. Yeah. So yeah, you were present, which was already an improvement just having you in the house with me was better than having you gone yeah but everything was still on my shoulders for 95 percent of you would occasionally change a diaper or do a bottle but that was about it because it's all i was it's all you it's all you could do and again i don't i held i hold no grudge for that i'm just glad you're still here yeah when did you start to notice a shift i think it was when you started stopped complaining about going and started looking forward to going 
because you started making connections with people there. Mm-hmm. And what do you, was it tied to when I started the Klonopin? It wasn't, it, again, it wasn't immediate. Yeah. But yes, when yeah. you got off of the Ativan and you were on, obviously Klonopin is still a, a benzo, but it is a slow acting and stays in your system. So it's not so volatile as the Ativan. That was the turning point when we when things started to go back the right direction, I think. Yeah. Because you started to, you were less cynical. You were less negative about the outpatient program and about what you had to do to take care of yourself. Yeah. And you started to listen to me again when things would get bad and I would talk you back to reality. It was working again. Yeah. And there would be longer and longer segments of lucidity, we'll say, where it was, you were still numb, you were still diminished, but you were at least present. And you started to do more around the house and with the kids. And it was just a slow, steady, crawling out of that pit that you were in and i finally felt like i wasn't the only one holding the rope yeah and then i graduated after i think a month and a half or two months yeah i was in partial hospitalization and then i um transferred over to intensive outpatient and then i graduated and i was terrified were you? I was. I wasn't terrified. I was nervous uh, because it was it was an effective crutch when you needed it. Yeah. For the support and to be like, okay, you're gonna walk on your own now. It's like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know if I was ready, but I hyped myself up. Yeah. And you were great. You took me out to dinner and you arranged it with the restaurants that we could have a quiet, secluded area so I wouldn't get overwhelmed. And I felt really celebrated and and like like I had done something big. You had. You had done something big. Don't diminish that. (laughs) You did something huge. Well. You made the choice to stay here and you did. Yeah. And I still have to fight the voices in my head every day that tell me these meds that you're on are going to screw you up. Or when you get off of these meds, you're going to go right back to that place. And, but I think I am in a place now where I am more myself than I have been since Avery was born. I'm not a hundred percent myself, but I am the most myself that I have been since Avery was born. I would agree with that. Um, I love being a stay-at-home mom with Avery. I don't necessarily love being a parent 100% of the time, but I absolutely love being able to parent. And I cherish every single second that I get with my kids, especially Avery, because I missed so much. And I know that one thing in particular that I do (laughs) bothers you, but... Ever since I got home from the hospital the last time, I have put Avery to bed because I missed 
almost four months with her. And even when I was sick as a dog, I would rock her to sleep. Ben has not put her to bed (laughs) since I was released from the hospital the last time. And I know that you're envious. I do. I miss it. One day I will let you do it again. But it's like I need that. And I don't, again, I don't begrudge you for it. I do miss it. And I get a little jelly. But (laughs) uh, I have my bedtime routine with Lily. And there are times where... I have really good conversations with her and so it's it's something that I look forward to and I I miss putting Avery to bed and through through all of the difficulty and all of the the trauma and all of the struggle Avery was a very colicky baby and to be the person to do the problem solving to figure out how to make your colicky baby happy. I was so in sync with that kid. Oh, I remember feeling, in the brief times that I would be home from a hospitalization, I would feel so insignificant because even if I tried to help, which I very rarely could, I was very, very sick, but I would have to ask Ben, like, what do I do? What does she like? Because I didn't know her. Yeah. And you really did. There was there's one moment in particular that I remember. It was the middle of the summer and you were sitting with Avery and she was just fussing and crying and inconsolable. And you, I don't know what to do. And all, all, all I had to do was touch her. And I knew she's too hot. And I picked her up and I went over and I stood in front of the air conditioner and she stopped crying instantly. And I had no idea. And just being able getting to a point where I could read her mood based on what kind of cry she was producing felt really good. Through all of the challenges and all of the difficulty to have our interaction that fine-tuned was incredible. Yeah. You got to know her on a level I think you never got to know Lily at that age. Absolutely. Yeah. And Lily, I mean, we were first-time parents. We were both winging it. Yeah. With with Avery, I definitely felt more prepared. Obviously, she threw some curveballs. Uh, Lily was very easy to feed. Whatever you put in the bottle, she drank with no problem. Uh, Avery, we had to go through a few different formulas before we found the one that worked. And we had to change our whole bottle uh, fleet because the ones that we had originally bought didn't. They weren't working for her. They weren't her. working for her. And then she'd get constipated and then she would, she just, she had a really hard time. She had really, she had bad belly issues. But to learn how to work through those problems and keep her happy was incredibly challenging and incredibly magical. I am very envious of you because you got to experience the fourth trimester with Avery and I completely missed out on it and beyond um Avery's first six months of life I wasn't me and I was gone and I will forever know that I I didn't have that with her I wasn't a parent for her during that time but I cannot even begin to express how thankful I am that I had a partner 
that I knew could handle it and I knew would step up and I knew would take good care of my kids because every time I was in the hospital, all I wanted to do, everything I was crying about was I want to take care of my kids. I want to take care of my kids. I want to be a mom, but I knew they were safe and I knew they were okay. (laughs) It means a lot to hear you say that. (laughs) (laughs) What hurt me was that I couldn't do it. I was never worried about them, though. But what I hope that you will come to understand in time is that you, it wasn't a choice. You didn't do this on purpose. There's no reason to be mad at yourself. You can be mad at the situation. I'm furious at the situation. But if that, I feel like if that's all you ever dwell on, you'll never fully heal. Yeah. So to focus on the fact that we have a cheeky little climber who's trying to get out of her (laughs) pack and play and just looking over her shoulder like, what am I doing? (laughs) We need to focus on those moments and not the moments that we miss. No. And that's the biggest takeaway from this whole experience for me is staying in the moment because you can't change the past and worrying about the future isn't going to change the outcome. And you're just going to ruin the time that you have now. So while, while I still have incredible fears about what my future looks like and about relapse. I fight every day to stay present and in the moment. And I fight to remind you that the equation that we're working with, the cards we've been dealt, when you do try to wean off of your medications are completely different than they were when you had your earlier episodes. Yeah. And so there's no correlation between how that process is going to go and how your previous process did go. Yeah. And you've been really good about helping me accept that regardless of the outcome, whether I stay on some of these meds or whether I don't, I'm going to be here and I'm going to be okay. That's what matters. Yeah. What matters is that you're here and you're and you're able to parent and 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 Live your life with me. I remember in one of our therapy sessions, in our group therapy sessions, or our partner's therapy sessions, you saying that you still felt like you had to be ready at a moment's notice to drop everything because you were still afraid of me. Yeah, do you I'm, still feel like that? Absolutely. You yeah, do? I'm, I'm, I am still working on accepting that I can do more involved hobbies. Yeah. Because I still feel like if you're experiencing the slightest amount of stress or feeling remotely anxious or depressed, I have to be able to drop everything that I'm doing and take care of you and potentially the kids 100%. I hope that that will fade. (laughs) I'm sure that it will in time. It's something that I need to work on. I need to work on being able to trust you again. Yeah. That you're trust that you're okay. Yeah. Because as as good as I am at talking you out of mistrusting yourself between the motorcycle accident which shook my trust in myself because I had always believed that I was a very, very good driver. I had very f- good reflexes. I was attentive. I was a defensive driver. I always thought that 
I would be able to handle if somebody tried to cut me. I would be able to get out of it somehow. Yeah. And that was not the case. And that really shook my trust in myself. And then having you say what you said to me in that third hospital stay shook my trust in you. Yeah. And I am still working on getting, on rebuilding all of the the trust that's been shaken in the last two years. So to kind of round this out, how did you feel or what were your thoughts when I told you about my vision for Quiet Connection? Because the initial thought of it happened months and months and months and months ago after my first episode where where we thought, okay, maybe I'm going to be okay. And yeah. I was like, something needs to be done about this. But then I couldn't really see it to fruition until more recently when I started to pursue it, I guess. What were your thoughts? I, I, I knew from the beginning that I wanted to support it 100%. Because there's so much wrong with how medical procedures and childbirth and maternity and paternity is dealt with in this country. The, the, the system is just, it's not even broken. It was, it was built to be broken. And anything that we can do to try and shed light on the struggles that women go through that are just, society just expects you to suck it up, deal with it, get over it, get back to work. Yeah. It's inhumane. It's beyond cruel. And anything that I can do to help somebody else, to either help them, help prevent them from going through what you went through, or to help them get through, if they're already in it, what you went through, anything we can do to lessen that burden. I think is a worthwhile pursuit. What would you say to to someone trying to support a partner or a friend who is experiencing something like what I went through or even even any type of of perinatal mood disorder? You have to find ways to recharge your own batteries in between taking care of your partner. Otherwise, you're 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 not going to have the endurance because that's it's an, it's an endurance race. It's not something that's going to be fixed quickly. It's not something that's going to be rushed. So, in the moments where, goodness forbid, your partner is hospitalized and out of the house, and your kids are asleep, just take take a little time to do whatever it is that recharges your batteries. For me, it was uh, vanilla ice cream with chocolate syrup and chocolate chips. <laughs> I would have a bowl of that every flipping night because it just gave me a little bit of joy. And I'm a big gamer. I would, you know, in the moments where I had some time to myself, if the girls were at my parents or what have you, I would make sure to play my favorite games. Whatever you can do to recharge your own batteries to get more spoons, however you want to put it. You have to remember to take care of yourself or you're not going to have the energy to take care of everyone else around you. Because we're still 
trying to regain those spoons. Both yeah. of us for, for different reasons, me healing from my trauma and him, you healing from your trauma. We are both still trying to regain spoons and we're both trying to work on our relationship because we have a hard time connecting with each other because we're so burnt out. Yeah. So something that I tell Chelsea often is there are no rules. There are no rules. The societal expectations that exist are fantasy. If you want to have cereal for dinner every night, one week, that's what you got to do. If you want to use all paper and plastic plates and cutlery because you don't have the energy to do the dishes, that's what you got to do. Is it environmentally friendly? Not really, but it's either that or lose your fucking mind. I, so you got to take care of yourself. There are no rules. You can do whatever it is that makes you a little bit more happy than you were 10 minutes ago is what you got to do. And if your body is telling you to rest, you need to rest. Yep. And if your body is telling you you need some comfort food, you eat the comfort food. And if your body is telling you you need a hug, you need a hug. You got to listen to your body. And if your body's not telling you anything, then know that you need to reach out. And I think that is the other half of quiet connection is giving people a resource to reach out to when they feel like there's nothing left for them. Not everybody is as lucky as we were in their support networks. No. We got very fortunate with a family that really stepped up and helped. There are people that have to go through this shit by themselves. And my heart goes out to every single one of them. And if there's anything that we can do to give those people a sense of community, a sense of connection, then I am willing to try. That's the goal. That's what I'm trying to do. So, yeah, I mean... This has been pretty enlightening for me. I have been throughout this process, especially since I've been more like coherent and myself and back to being able to to handle real life. I've been really curious about what this experience was like without me here and like what was going on behind the scenes and how you were feeling. And so this was really enlightening for me. But like I said, I never worried about the kids or I, I knew that you were taking care of it. And I knew it wasn't fair and I knew that I didn't like it, but I wasn't worried. So hopefully hearing this can help other caregivers. I hope so. Because they are also not alone and their trauma is valid as well. And it is trauma. It is trauma. Yeah. And it can be challenging as a caregiver because, and we've talked about this recently, when things do start to improve, it can get to a point where you feel like you, you feel guilty about voicing as a, as a caregiver, you feel guilty about voicing your anxieties and your trauma because you don't want to feel like you're belittling or negating what your partner went through and you feel like what they went through is so much worse and so i just need to suck it up and 
and deal with it. And there's a time and a place for that when you're in the thick of it. But when things start to recover, it's incredibly important to communicate again. Yes. And to establish that I don't always have the energy to take care of you. I don't always have the energy to cater to your anxieties. Sometimes we have to cater to mine. And trying to make sure that everybody has enough energy to help each other. We're getting back to a place of a new normal. Yeah. We're learning a new normal and we're using skills that we've picked up along the way to sort of adapt to this new situation, but it's going to get better. And that's true for everyone. It's going to get better. It may not feel like it right now, but it is going to get better. The only way to get through it is to get through it. I wish that there was a way over, under, around, but that was a a parallel that I made between my physical recovery from my motorcycle accident that at the time you were not happy to hear. No. But... Because I felt like there was a difference between losing your body and losing your mind. Which there is, but there are also some parallels, one of which being the only way is through. Yeah. The only way to get to the end of the suffering is to get through the suffering. And you're going to. And you're going to get through it. I want to acknowledge and say that I deeply appreciate my partner's ability to be open, honest, and transparent in his telling of what it was like to be a caregiver to me. That was not an easy conversation for the two of us to have, but I'm glad that we were able to share it with you. If you want to follow along with us on Quiet Connection, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Quiet Connection or at Quiet Connection Podcast. A great way to show your support for our community is to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform and consider sharing our episodes through social media. If you'd like to share your personal journey, you can reach us through our website, quietconnectionpodcast.com, or by emailing us at quietconnectionppmh at gmail.com. Join us next time where another story is told and you realize... You are not alone. I see you.